Velasquez Digital Media Communications help the long dance come to life. Whether you need consulting or audio production services, Velasquez Media has the right tools for podcast creators. Find us on the web at velasquezmedia.com. That's V-E-L-A-S-Q-U-E-Z media.com. Mysteries like the long dance can be a lot of fun, but not everything needs to be a mystery, like finding the right home. I'm Lana Pierce, a realtor with Keller Williams. Whether you're local or not, contact me at Durham NC Realty or lanapierce at kw.com. Let me investigate the right options for you. Lana Pierce Realtor, homes are my hustle. Lead the detective work to the professionals. Hi, this is Eric. And Steve from the Writer Types Podcast. If you dig the long dance as much as we do, check out our conversations with crime, mystery, and thriller authors like Sarah Paretsky, Blake Crouch, and Gillian Flynn. We even interviewed Eric Pruitt. Find Writer Types wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to The Long Dance, an eight-part true crime podcast hosted by investigative reporter Drew Adamek and crime fiction author Eric Pruitt. This is Episode 6, Rule 404B. If you haven't listened to Episodes 1 through 5 yet, we encourage you to stop here and go back so that you can catch up to speed. If you have yet to subscribe, please do so. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever you find great podcasts. Be sure to check out our website, thelongdancepodcast.com. Most of all, thank you for listening. What drew you to this case, Eric? Well, I mean, it's one of those stories that you get drawn to. A, it's a serial killer type story, but without a serial killer. It's one of the first things that we looked for was in a case like this, there's got to be other ones. So we spent a lot of time trying to find the other murders that were similar to this. And of course, that was the biggest shock was that there weren't. And one thing that's never settled with me on James Ray, because he's got the motive, the means, and the opportunity. You can place him there with the murder weapon, you know, with the weapon. But that fact that there's no known instances of violence just still nags at me. That's always been, I mean, that's always been my argument against James Ray, is that the guy has never on paper anyways, raised his hand against another person and everybody we've talked to has always just, you know, painted him as kind of a dopey guy, but never violent in any instance. I mean, in everybody that we've talked to, nobody's ever said that he's been violent. And on the flip side, you have Jim Wilson, Dr. Wilson, who's been violent with everyone, but still it just doesn't, it just doesn't seem to ring true that he had something to do with this case. I mean, the other thing that's always stuck with me is that the killer might still be out there and that the killer might actually be, I mean, it was one of the things that first drew me to this, this idea that the killer might be a respected member of the community and that a, the people kind of knew him. A doctor, someone in the medical profession is what they've always said. A doctor at Watts. So the nursing student would have known him. I'm Drew Adamack. Eric Pruitt and I spend a lot of time in the car. A lot. As a recent arrival to North Carolina, this case has opened my eyes to its varied and beautiful landscapes, its nooks and crannies. We take a lot of back roads. We catch a lot of scenery. We eat plenty of barbecue. 
this is, I mean, without a doubt, the most complicated, entangled story that I've just ever seen of this, this type. I mean, it just, it just has the kinds of like, twists and turns and goofiness that To me, this story is like an onion, where you peel it and there's more and more layers. However, the more you peel, the bigger the onion gets. We have long conversations about this case and how it's affected us the more time we spend with it, the further we investigate its mysteries. We talk about the people we've met, those who have been profoundly impacted by these horrible murders, those whose lives have been forever changed by the events that took place on February 12th, 1971. In January, we drove to the coast. We had had a major breakthrough. Even after over 16 months of researching the murders of Patricia Mann and Jesse McBain, it was not uncommon for a new development to change our investigative trajectory, especially something like this. We tracked down Tim Bowers. To refresh, Tim Bowers was the rookie detective who, after Pat and Jesse disappeared, had been assigned the cases of missing persons. When their bodies turned up two weeks later, Tied to a tree, that case became a double homicide. It would be his first case. It would be Tim Bowers who developed what would become the primary suspect in this case, the one still living. It was his work in the case file, his notes, that would fuel Captain Tim Horn's investigation 40 years later, the same notes that would fuel ours. However, as detailed in Episode 2, when Horn interviewed Bowers in 2011, He'd recently suffered a stroke and could provide no viable information. Our efforts to locate him had proved fruitless until January, but within 24 hours of stumbling across him, we found ourselves at his front door. Finally, we would meet the man who spent more time on this case than anyone else, the man whose career would be defined by his obsession with solving this murder. Unfortunately, Mr. Bowers' condition left him unable to communicate that passion. There were several things he could not remember. However, there were things he most definitely could. When did you first become a police officer? Oh, Lord. I don't remember. I had a stroke. I can't remember. Uh, do you remember starting at uh, Durham? Yeah. Uh, what was that like, working at Durham? When I remember of it, it was good. Do you remember... Um, what, what it was like for you to be a police officer? What you liked about it? I don't know. It was, it could be tough. That was a rough time back then with, with Durham, wasn't it? Yeah. A lot, of, a lot of crime. Do you remember um, hearing about the, 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 the murder of that nursing student and her boyfriend? When did you first hear about that? Uh, what can you recall about it? I like one suspect, uh, Carl Britt. He's the, he's the man that did it. And I don't know where to go from there because I've always thought of him as being the murderer. I want to get that murderer. I want to see him take a fall for this terrible crime. I don't know what else to say. 
When Eric and I first started investigating this case, we had available to us only articles from newspapers or pages we had Googled from the Internet. There were very few details, but those details were scintillating. For example, the police had always believed the number one suspect had once worked at Durham's Watts Hospital. Or that the victims had been strangled, possibly over a long period of time. Or that the killer called Jesse's mother from a Durham payphone in the 90s and confessed to their murders. And that's it. Old issues of the Durham and Raleigh newspapers had only information about the nascent days of the investigation. And if you remember, the police divulged no information to the public. This mysterious doctor's identity was a mystery. We approached Patricia's cousin and best friend, Carolyn Spivey. She directed us to Captain Horn. Both of them weighed the options of working with us, then politely declined. We didn't quit there. Working off a library list of all doctors who worked at Watts during that period, we cross-referenced the names of each against known criminal behavior. When we identified a physician with a record, we investigated him further, eventually crossing them all off the list. All of them, that is, except for one. We brought our findings to Captain Horn, who then decided to take a chance and work with us, since we had arrived at the same conclusion as he had. He opened up the case file to show us why. So what did we find that tipped us off? Alone, the incident would be benign, but this would be our gateway into something much, much more captivating. On January 12, 1995, a Durham woman named Susan Higginbotham was beat senseless during a road rage incident. According to reports in both the Durham Herald Sun and the Raleigh News and Observer, Higginbotham would testify that Dr. Robert Carl Britt followed her home after he became upset with her driving on Main Street near Watt Street. During this attack, he called her a, quote, feminist bitch, then spat on her, punched her, and knocked her to the ground. Once she fell, he kicked and punched her at least 25 times, at one point removing his shoe to strike her with it. Also in court, Britt, a Durham doctor, would claim that he merely confronted her for an explanation of her careless driving and that she came out swinging. She grabbed his tie and tried to choke him. He claimed that she must have been skilled in martial arts, leading to howls of laughter inside the courtroom, according to one News and Observer article. Britt was found guilty of misdemeanor assault in 1995 by Durham's district court. He appealed and was given a continued prayer for judgment by the Superior Court, which cleared his court record of the offense. In 1998, the medical board reviewed his dishonorable conduct charge brought about by his actions, and the incident was deemed a mutual assault. The medical board absolved him. He kept his license and continued to practice medicine in Durham, only blocks from the incident between him and Higginbotham. This prompted us to poke around a little more. Were there similar incidents lurking in Dr. Britt's past? Perhaps. Also on his record, a speeding ticket, which resulted in a resisting arrest charge in 1988, breaking and entering an automobile as a juvenile in South Carolina, an assault on a member at the Hollow Rock Racket and Swim Club in 2000. That incident, especially interesting because the Herald Sun quoted prosecutor Amy Guy after she dismissed Britt's counter-warrant in the assault, as saying, he has a terrible temper, he gets out of control. But these incidents, although abominable, are a far cry from what we were looking for. After all, 
no one died. Right? That's why, when we uncovered what happened in Dillon, South Carolina, one rainy September morning in 1961, red flags immediately started popping. But let's back up just a second. Before we start ticking off a list of grievances, we should stop and ask an important question. Who is Dr. Robert Carl Britt? To find out a little bit more about him, we took a trip down to Lumberton, North Carolina, where the good doctor grew up. The first thing you notice upon entering Lumberton is that the name Britt is everywhere. The sign in front of the Lions Club Park boasts the name J.N. Britt Jr. Joyce Britt Shingle hangs outside a Blue Cross Blue Shield agency. There's a Britt Park, a Lee Britt Road, Britt and Britt Roofing. It's no surprise that they've named the genealogy room at the Robeson County Public Library the Kate Britt Briggs Room. There, we asked the librarian why the name Britt is so common. Because there's a million of them, she tells us. A 1763 tax list of Bladen claims the first Brit in the area to be Joseph Britt. Next, a John Britt in 1768, then Benjamin Britt in 1770. Benjamin begat Jesse, who begat John, who begat another Benjamin, and Lamb, and so on and so forth. By the 1800s, the Brits exploded across the registries and censuses of Robeson County. Different factions of Brit identify as either big-footed Brits or guinea-footed ones. A common greeting between them is which Brit are you kin to? Each faction denies the other, but they are most likely all descended from Joseph. Instead of a remote hillside, this clan resides in towns and cities across the southeast and serve their communities as doctors, lawyers, educators, and agricultural managers. They intermarry with families like the Ivies, the Baggetts, the Johnsons. Carl Britt's parents, Robert Lee and Virginia Spratt Britt, returned to Robeson from Dehue County, West Virginia, when young Carl was only two years old. Their house at 819 East 5th Street is long gone, replaced by a funeral home. According to Lumberton's hometown newspaper, the Robesonian, young Carl Britt was something of a local rising star. The son of a prominent hospital administrator, Carl achieved perfect attendance in school in 1941, 46, 50, and 53. He returned two kickoffs or touchdowns in a single game in 1952, setting a North Carolina high school record. He achieved the highest rank in both the Boy Scouts and the Sea Scouts. When he delivered his valedictory speech upon graduation in 1954, his speech urged fellow graduates to choose life, to select a way of life with strength and courage, and that they not shirk, but rather face up to realities and live. He married in 1957, attended the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, fathered a daughter, graduated medical school in 1961. He practiced an internship at Georgia Baptist Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. This is when Dylan happened. September 9th, 1961. So far as we can tell, it was a moonless Saturday morning. 25-year-old Carl Britt rushed from his internship in Atlanta to attend a family wedding in Lumberton. It was late, 1.40 a.m. A 31-year-old mill worker, Floyd Carnes, walked alongside the two-lane highway at Maple Swamp Bridge. Patrolman Sam P. Biggers quoted Britt as saying Carnes stood in what appeared to be a frozen position on the bridge. Then, at the last minute, tried to dive out of the way of the oncoming car. He stated that Britt claimed to do everything he could to keep from hitting the man. Be that as it may, according to the Florence Morning News, Carnes was carried on the hood of the car for over 70 yards before the body tumbled over the car and fell off the back. There were no records kept of the inquest, or if one was ever held. 
There have only been three coroners in Dillon since 1961, and current coroner Donnie Grimsley could not locate any autopsy for Mr. Carnes. Patrolman Sam P. Biggers died a few years back, and the highway patrol did not retain his incident report. In fact, the only record of Britt's involvement in this accident seemed to be the entries preserved by local newspapers. The records we did find in the Dillon County Courthouse? Floyd Carnes left behind him a wife and four kids. We're the fifth on the way. He left no will, and his family requested to borrow $40 in order to provide a suit in which to bury him. There was a wrongful death action suit notice, the balance of which was $3,250. After attorney's fees, a bill from Bethea Funeral Home, and other such charges, the Carnes family received a sum total of $1,405.77 for the death of their patriarch. Even still, it took his wife three years to settle the cost of putting Floyd into the ground. We continued to dig. By now, you're probably asking, when did Dr. Robert Carl Britt first pop up on the radar of detectives working the Man McBain case? The murders happened in February of 1971. It wouldn't be until October of that year when Durham Detective Tim Bowers finally threw up his hands, and with the aid of Assistant D.A. Nicholas Smith, they visited Dr. James A. Brussel, the New York crime psychiatrist who helped police in the Boston Strangler killings. Remember, back in Episode 2, the killer will be an athletic man between 25 and 40 years paranoid, old. paranoid out to cleanse the world. This was a grudge slaying. The killer is a loner, a neat, precise man with an average or above average education. He will be clean shaven, have no criminal record, an excellent work record. He will not wear flashy clothes. He appears to conduct himself properly. He may have suffered from childhood rejection by he his considers mother. He himself above other persons and capable of judging The killer them. would have acted alone, would have taken no unnecessary risks. And would have known the neighborhood of the slains well. The killer would also have most likely been the man who called the emergency room on the night the couple disappeared. This was his way of displaying his cleverness, as if to say, look at me, look at what I have done. According to records in the case file, when Durham's Dr. Leroy Isler opened his copy of The Morning Sun on October 29, 1971, he read Cornelia Olive's article detailing Brussels' analysis. It hit him square in the chest. For he and his partners at the renowned internal medicine firm of Isler, Nichols, Singletary and Williams, housed at Durham's Medical Arts Building, had been the targets of a campaign of steady harassment at the hands of one of their former colleagues. That's right. Aside from passive attacks, such as the stealing of lab coats, puncturing of tires, and vandalism to property, they were also subjected to more aggressive tactics. A couple of physicians overheard physical threats against Isler, one of whom even witnessed a gun. These incidents were heavily documented throughout the case file. Isler read the FBI profile and thought immediately of Dr. Robert Carl Britt. This would be the first time Dr. Britt would show up in this investigation. It would not be the last. Enter Mark Cheney. Mark Cheney asked that we change his name for this broadcast, and we agreed. But what remains unchanged and heavily documented in the case file is what happened on November 20th, 1973. For on that night, he became the most important piece of the puzzle in the Man McBain investigation. That's kind of the thing of how I managed to see. Well, I started hitchhiking when I was 14. I, I actually, I started hitchhiking when I was in fifth grade up the top of the hill from where I lived in Alabama. I could see my school. 
And my principal could sit in his office and watch me hitchhiking home, and it used to drive him crazy. So when I went to Atlanta, I would, you know, well, I took the bus to Atlanta, but after that, I would just hitchhike everywhere. And I swear, I must have looked like some little angel baby child standing by the side of the road. And I got a lot of, you know, just I had cued down. All my older friends hated it like that. They, I think they loved it when I got a little older and a little more wrinkled. And so I was just. Mark Cheney could fill volumes with his stories of hitchhiking across America and the many colorful characters he met. We only heard a sample of them on the evening we caught up with him in his quiet North Carolina home. He's retired now, but he's lived a life cram-packed with adventure. His run-in with Carl Britt would be no different. In November 1973, over two and a half years after the murders, Mark and a friend had hitched a ride into Durham. After an afternoon in the Bull City, they decided to, well, why don't we let Mr. Cheney tell the story? Uh, We went to a playground in Durham for the afternoon to party. Um, and towards evening, we didn't have a car, so we were hitchhiking back then, you could do that. And since it started, the sun started going down, we needed to get to back home before dark. So we were hitchhiking and not doing a very good job. It and was, it was I, cold that night. It was very cold, I was wearing a t-shirt. And I, I got a, a bad attitude and acted poorly and I was uh, being rude to cars and flipping them off and, and generally being a nuisance, to be honest, quite frankly. But that's just, that's just teenage it. bullshit that you're, you're engaged in, nothing serious. Yeah, right? the invincibility phase, I guess. Yeah. But somebody takes offense to that. A uh, gentleman who immediately whips uh, around and jumps out of his car. I, right now, I can't even remember. I think it was a, something like long, like an Oldsmobile, a sedan, and pulled the gun out and said, I'm a police officer, get in the car, which seemed highly inappropriate to me because I've never seen it. Usually it's up against the wall. And what did the guy look like? Seemed to be a smallish guy, not very large build. And, and yes, quite frankly, uh, you see the gun more. <laughs> so you don't really see him so much as like, but, but how do you react to this situation? I mean, you're just hitchhiking, kind of goofing off as a teenager, and some jackass shows up with a gun. I mean, what is your emotional reaction to all of this? Well, that's a good thought. Um, I don't think I had a thought. I think it's the one time in my life I just immediately moved into action. I just, I, my friend was standing behind him with my buck knife, saying, you know, saying, I'm now I'm wondering if he shouldn't have done it, saying, you want me to stab him? He was right. It wouldn't have taken a bit of motion. And I said, I got, I just stepped towards him in between him and the gun, basically to negate the effect of the gun. You described standing so close to him that you could see his suit. What was that like? Again, he wasn't a, a scary person. He wasn't large, he, he was not, he didn't have a beard, he wasn't misshaven, he wasn't smelly or stinky. I mean, all the things you would associate with bad, I don't remember seeing any of that. I, no long hair, even if I remember correctly. But yeah, I stepped close enough that he would have had to turn the gun around to himself. And my friend was standing behind the both of us, so he didn't even have a target for his anxiety, whatever. And then, I, th- I think he just all of a sudden totaled in his mind. It sure looked like he just realized that he was surrounded and didn't want to be surrounded anymore and went and hopped in his car, very unpolice-like. You, you mentioned um, that he felt like he had suddenly, it seemed like he felt like he had lost control of this situation. Or, or right, yeah, you're standing there holding a the gun at two kids and they don't even slow down. They're not afraid. They don't, they don't react in the way you think they should react. 
Or how does he then react to that? He immediately stepped to the car. I, I don't remember anything beyond that, although my memory's fading. I'm getting older. And, you know, I try to eat my peas and carrots, but it, they, don't, they cost more than they used to. So as soon as he takes off, then what do you do? I immediately just move into training everybody should have. I, I read the license number of the make of the car, and I don't know if we wrote it down or just memorized it. I think we just worked at memorizing it until we got to the next exit and called the police to report because he had called himself a police officer. And up to that point, I believed he, that he was. I, I thought in my rebellious mind that, well, I've got a complaint against a police officer. I want to give this complaint. He should not be a police officer. You don't know how surprised I was when they told me he was not. Like I said, all of those things about gauging everything really didn't make sense because you believe people until, you know, you don't. <laughs> Here, we'll take a break from Mr. Cheney and return to the case file. It's well documented from the complaint filed by Mr. Cheney to Durham Police Officer W.R. Thomas. Thomas reports that the assailant drove a 1969 Pontiac with a license plate number HFX764. Durham ran this plate, and it came back to Robert Carl Britt of Colwood Drive. Britt's address is important for two reasons. First... It fits the direction where Mr. Cheney said the Pontiac departed after the attempted abduction. Second, Colwood Drive is just around the corner from the undeveloped Crowsdale track, where Pat and Jesse went missing only two years earlier. So where was he on the night of February 12, 1971? No one can verify. According to the case file, he was scheduled to attend one of the UNC basketball games in Charlotte, a doubleheader played in Charlotte on both the 12th and the 13th. It's unspecified which game. However, Bowers reported that an undisclosed source placed him at Watts Hospital that Friday night. If this is true, he would have driven past the Crowsdale subdivision on his way to his home on Colwood. It's also important to note that in December of 1970, Dr. Britt's father, Robert Lee Britt, had been diagnosed with leukemia. By the time of the murders, he was dying in Duke Hospital, right under his son's nose. He would finally pass in April but it's not difficult to imagine how Carl Britt, a doctor with a hell of an angry streak, might process his father's mortality. When his father did finally expire, the death certificate is signed by Carl's younger brother, Preston Britt. The address he gives belongs to a trailer home located, you guessed it, just around the corner from where the bodies were found. Is this significant? Let's take a further step back. Do you remember in episode three when we went to visit former SBI agent Clarence Gooch? Gooch referred to an incident in Duke Forest, an attempted abduction, where a man with a gun interrupted a young couple parking in their car and ordered them into the trunk of his car. These young lovers escaped, and the story has been repeated for some time by different people we've interviewed in this case, despite the fact that we can find no official record of it. Still, the Duke Forest incident lives on in rumor. We asked Captain Tim Horn at the Orange County Sheriff's Office about that incident. I don't know that much about it. I mean, does a possibility exist that it was the killer trying to do it again? Absolutely. Was it a copycat? Absolutely. Was it totally unrelated? Absolutely. We've had problems in Duke Forest for the entire time that I've been here since 1990, and clearly it's gone back before that. 
Did you look it up? We looked up what we could find. I mean, most of it was just from word of mouth, you know, what, what people recalled. Uh, I just feel like if it had been that much of a of a similarity, that much of a lead, surely somebody, us, Duke, somebody would have had more in the case file about it. I don't know. Maybe that's hoping for too much, but it certainly would seem logical that there would be more written about it. Uh, but that's just my opinion. Now, thanks to Mark Cheney, for the first time, there is record of someone impersonating a police officer and ordering young people into his car. Only a half mile from where Pat and Jesse were abducted. Could this have been what happened to them? So how did police proceed after the Cheney incident? Let's go back to retired former detective Tim Bowers. Did you ever talk to him? The doctor? Yeah. What was he like? He was cold. He was cold. He was a nice looking man. He was cold. And he didn't care what we talked about as long as, as he got rid of me. You know what I mean? Just go away and leave me alone. I took a man with me one time. I thought he'd be a good witness. And he got real upset. The man got real upset. Was that Nick Smith? Why did he get upset? He got, he got, uh, he got, he, he, he said, I missed you out, I said, don't worry about it. So I knew, eventually I get it. Something that's kept me going all these years. Through strokes and everything. I knew I was going to get it. Three days after Cheney filed his complaint, Durham Police Lieutenant Dick Morris sent a note to Detective Tim Bowers. Bowers heard the name Britt, and immediately his ears perked. According to his notes on the Cheney assault, for over a period of two years, he has investigated the activities of the suspect Britt, who is a medical doctor in Durham. The reason, he says in his report, is due to a series of strange incidents in his behavior, beginning while he had his office in the Medical Arts Building. This would have been the situation with Dr. Isler that we mentioned earlier. The slashed tires, the stolen coats, the waving the gun around. Bowers contacts the hospital and discovers Britt taught the pulmonary lectures to the nursing students at Watts. He obtains a photograph of Britt. He then drives to Greensboro with seven other photographs, and from them, Cheney picks his assailant. He points to the picture of Britt. Bowers then grabs former assistant to the district attorney, Nicholas Smith. Remember him? He's the same Nick Smith who helped Bowers with the parapsychologist and the FBI profiler. Remember that name, Nick Smith. It'll come up later. Bowers and Smith decide to question Britt about the encounter with Cheney. It's important to note, although he had been investigated for two years, according to Tim Bowers' notes, this would be the first time he's questioned by law enforcement. According to statements given by both Bowers and Smith, Britt denied involvement. But not only that, he offered the following statement. I hope you catch the guy that did this to those boys, because he sounds like the same guy that killed those kids a few years ago. What? Even reading it in the file, we can imagine the look on Bowers and Smith's faces. What kids, they asked. The girl who was a student nurse at Watts and her boyfriend, 
said Britt, according to the case file. The case file also notes here that no charges were filed against Britt for the assault on Cheney. We should add that, up to this point, it appears no charges had ever been filed against him. Nearly a half century later, Orange County Captain Tim Horn still puzzles over that interaction. He's just as baffled as we are. It makes you wonder, why did he say that? Was he just nervous? And he just felt like to break the silence or something, he had to say something? Or had to throw those officers off of his track to push blame elsewhere? I don't know. But he certainly would have been much better. Had he not opened his mouth, his name probably wouldn't be in the case file. Because I don't know they would have necessarily connected the two. And when we asked Captain Horn why there were no further pursuits of Brit after this interaction, how he could continue to operate and practice medicine, why there were no further visits or charges filed or questions asked, he has no answer. And how could he? He was only two when the bodies of Pat and Jesse were found. He was only four when Durham detectives questioned Brit for the Cheney assault. Like us, he has only the papers in that box. And questions. He also has a lot of questions. I mean, basically his behavior at the hospital seems outlandish because the average person is just not aware that this kind of thing ever went on, and so it just sounds like some kind of fantasy. They envision doctor, stethoscope, white coat, you know, do no harm, only good, trying to save your patients, help your patients, whatever. And when you hear stories that, that this guy literally would carry a gun on him in his white coat and bully people, and threat people with physical violence, and slash tires on, on, on other doctors' vehicles, and steal their white coats and throw in dumpsters, and bully people to get what he wanted. That's not what the average person is used to hearing in the same context as a doctor. And today it wouldn't be tolerated for a second. I mean, HR would be involved just like that, and they would be suspended, fired, boom. But back in the day, you know, entities like Watts and other large corporations, businesses, what have you, they, they, they tended to try to handle stuff in-house, and they didn't want a big deal made of it. They didn't want a lot of publicity, and things were just swept under the rug. And it may not be like that everywhere back in the 70s, but it was certainly at Watts. I mean, you got drugs that were missing. You had a lot of alleged inappropriate contact between doctors and the nursing students. I mean, you always wonder how many times if he had been reprimanded and, and held accountable going through from beginning to end, how many opportunities you know, were lost that maybe he would have stopped doing this kind of stuff. Because it certainly seems like things built. I'm not saying day one. Uh, I mean, yeah, he's, he's our top suspect. He's not the only suspect. Maybe he did it, maybe he didn't, right? But how many opportunities were lost going as this thing progressed from beginning to end if he had been held accountable, called in front of the board, threatened to lose his medical license, been sued for millions of dollars for malpractice or what have you, would he have kind of woken him up? Hey, I can't just do what I want to and act any way I want to, and there's, there's, you know, consequences to actions. I'm not saying it would have saved Patricia or Jesse, but, 
you could still argue that maybe it would have. But his whole career, his whole career, he just got away and did what the hell he wanted to do. So, you know, it's unfortunate. Missed opportunities. It's a theme which runs through the investigation into Dr. Robert Carl Britt. Watts would eventually sanction him, but according to the records we found, it was little more than a slap on the wrist. Why didn't they push harder? Why did they allow a doctor to threaten his co-workers with a gun or other worse allegations we uncovered? Why wasn't he questioned further after the assault on Mark Cheney? And why was he never approached when, on February 29, 1996, a phone call was made from Loman Plaza in Durham, just a mile and a half from where Pat and Jesse went missing, to Hilda McBain, Jesse's mother. When we talked to Gail Brantley, Jesse's sister, she recounted what happened. Well, you know, number one, it was, I mean, I think it woke Mother up. It was late at night. She got the call, and it was while she was still living in the old house. She, you know, she answered the phone um, says, um, I, I killed your son. And she says, who is this? And they said, you know, Dr. Britt. And she says, you know, like, I beg your pardon? What is your name? And I, I think he repeated it, Dr. Dr. Britt, and said, I killed your son. And um, as far as I know, that was the end of the, the conversation. At one time, they had mother's um, phone, you know, had a, a tracer on it. After that, they put the tracer, they may have briefly put the tracer back home, but then also we were, you know, tore, tore down that house and she um, built another house there where the old farmhouse was. But, and because I even asked Mother, because I, like I said, I'd never mentioned that name to Mother, and I said, Mother, who did you say? You know, because I was questioning her, and she was very clear. How many of those phone calls did she get? Um... Uh, Usually it was like around the anniversary. I, I mean, she would get the calls um, around the time that the, this happened. It wasn't like in the summer months. It would be around the, the time. I would say she probably received maybe uh, four or possibly four. But only uh, one time did they. And, and I think they would just say... Um, I know who killed your son or something like that, or, you know, it was never any identification. Except for the one time. Mm -hmm. Except for the one time. Was that the last time? Mm -hmm. According to the case file, taps were put on Hilda McBain's phones. The call had been traced to the Loman Plaza payphone, and the businesses were questioned with photographs of Carl Britt. According to the case file, Carl Britt was never questioned about the phone call. Pissed off yet? You should be. You should be good and rankled. Dr. Britt's whole life was the bully that never got punched in the nose. You know, he did what he wanted to, he got away with it. That empowers him even more. Very few, if anybody, ever stood up to him and physically or verbally punched him in the nose. And not that it would have changed anything, though it could have, but you gotta understand, the more time goes on, every little thing you get away with I mean, how powerful do you become in your own mind? I'm above the law. I'm immune. I'm right. Everyone else is wrong. I do what I want to. And sometimes that punch on your nose, as they said in Cool Hand Luke, gets your mind right. It gets your mind right. 
It's like maybe I'm not as big and bad and tough as I thought I was. Maybe I need to rethink that. Maybe I need to watch how I act or treat somebody or threaten them because maybe somebody's going to kick my butt. But if nobody ever stands up to that bully, It's unfair to judge by today's standards. In the age of WikiLeaks, Harvey Weinstein, and Me Too, it's more difficult to normalize bad behavior, to expose shady characters and their history of misdeeds. However, the shadows were long in 1971, and Britt managed to stick close to them. Despite that outlandish statement made after the Cheney assault, despite the late-night phone call to Hilda McBain, Despite the 40 years his name remained at the top of the suspect pool, by the time Captain Tim Horn found that box and reopened the man McBain homicide, no one had yet to question Dr. Robert Carl Britt in regards to these murders. On April 26, 2011, he reckoned that time had come. We've mentioned in a previous episode that Captain Horn had assistance while investigating the man McBain murder case. He recruited a detective newly arrived at the Orange County Sheriff's Office, Investigator Don Hunter. You may wonder why we've waited until now to introduce Don. It's not our fault. She works a never-ending caseload. Crime don't sleep. Lucky for Orange County, neither does Don Hunter. Many times, our scheduled interviews with her would be preempted by more pressing law enforcement matters. Once, it was the apprehension of a high-profile sex offender. Another time... She was dispatched to interview witnesses in another similar crime. She works the man McBain homicide when she can, in her off hours. This is because, no matter how busy she gets, it continues to nag at her. I've read the case file like four times, and I know that every time I go back into it, I'll see something else. I know that I missed something, and it's been a while since I've looked at it. Um, even like when you guys like started coming back around, I'll see different things and I'm like, oh, and I'll remember something and I'm like, oh my gosh, it, it is very addicting. And then speaking, Tim knows the family better than I do, but just been speaking with the family and getting to know Carol, um, especially Carol, she's just so sweet. It's like, and I might get emotional. I think I'm going to, I'm sorry. What are you thinking of when you see that picture? Just based on what Carol has told me about Patricia and Jesse, that they were really good people. I'm sorry. I have been like really emotional lately because of other cases that I work too, so I can't help it. <laughs> and that they, it's, it's sad that, um, and I don't know if the investigators were on the right track by back then, but they, they just were taken too early. And I really wish that I want the case to be solved because I think that the family needs closure. And I hope that either us or somebody, another invest, other investigators, or we could do that for them because it must be devastating for the family not to know. Don't be fooled by her soft voice. Dawn, nearing the end of her tenure on the Special Victims Unit, deals with crimes, usually of a sexual nature against children and the elderly. To decompress from these unspeakable horrors, Dawn Hunter tirelessly hunts a murderer from a decades-old crime. Have you ever worked a case this old or seen anybody work no, a case this old? I never have, ever. 
And, and did you think, I mean, did you have this reaction um, at any point? Did you think, 1971, that's crazy to chase it? I always uh, think that there's something, I always try to look at the good and to where that there's something there that you that is solvable. I don't always look at the negative when it comes to that those, these type of cases. So I always believe in my heart that there's something there to where it could be solved. And I still think that it can be. We just have to keep looking into it a little bit deeper. I mean, we didn't develop him. He was developed years mm -hmm. ago by other investigators. We have gone with what has been presented to us and then, you know, his own actions towards us when we go to confront him. It just may, raises our curiosity and interest and makes him look more guilty by how he acted when we confronted him. It's like, what the hell? If you didn't do this, you know, show us that you didn't. That's right. A confrontation decades in the making. Finally, after investing countless hours, off the clock, sifting through the notes from other investigators, Horn and Hunter decide to finally do what had yet to be done by anyone. Myself and Captain Horn had gone over to Durham to do a follow-up at Watts Hospital. We had drove back to Orange County, and I said, well, let's go by his house, because I had never gone by where he currently lives. Captain Horn said, well, let's just go in and go speak with him. And I was like, are you sure? Because we really didn't um, prepare for anything. And he said, yes. So we just do a cold call, pull up in his driveway, knock on the door. We knocked on his door, and um, he opened it and let us in. We knock on the door. He comes to the door wearing some light blue with like a medium blue striped pajamas. And it was 3.30ish in the afternoon. I don't know if he had been sleeping. Um, it was in the middle of the afternoon, but it, he kind of like had bed clothes on. For his age, he appeared to be somewhat built, like as if he was a strong man. He's not very tall. Um, and he's a good-looking older man. And so he invited us in. I introduced myself, introduced Dawn Hunter, the other investigator, and told him I want to talk to him. He was very cordial. He had a smile on his face, and um, he didn't allow us to come in. He, uh, we went into his living room. I sat in one chair to the right of him, and then and Captain Horn sat across from him. Most of the time, People at least say, sure, you can come in, what's this about? And he didn't, he didn't really ask. He just uh, showed us in, we sat down in the living room. I felt that he was very flirtatious with me when he let us in. He did speak with both of us. He mainly corresponded with Investigator Horn. Occasionally, when I would ask him some questions, he would speak and correspond with me. But he also appeared to be extremely nervous. So you know, he was kind of just looking at me, and I said, I appreciate you, you know, giving us the time. We'd like to talk to you about the Jesse McBain, Patricia Mann homicide from 1971. And he, he just chuckled. And he said, you know, that happened 40 years ago. And in 40 more years, none of this will even matter. And that was just a really odd response. To, uh, to that topic. And I thought that was an interesting statement because that kind of stood out to me. I thought he was kind of being smug when he said that. So we discuss, you know, the case briefly, 
the whole time. Uh, he's mainly focusing on me. I started just asking him a, a bunch of questions concerning the case. And it got to a point to where he acted like I wasn't even in the room. Dawn would ask questions and she kind of upset him. We knew from talking to other people that he liked to be the smartest one in the room. He liked to be the most uh, dominant person. He did not particularly like uh, females, positions of authority, or asking him demanding questions. And I told him, I said, I know you can hear me. And um, he started ignoring me. And then he just focused totally on Captain Horn as if I wasn't even sitting there. So I just continued to keep asking questions and started saying things about Patricia. I noticed she worked in the hospital with you. So she would ask a question, he would look at me and give the response. And he would look back at her and she'd ask a second question, but he would never look at her and give her the response. It was always me, so clearly he was focusing on me. I made reference to another person that I knew that worked with him um, at the hospital, then also worked in his um, office at the time, because his name had also been brought up. It didn't take long to, to realize that what we've been told about him was correct, his mannerisms and, and the, way, the way he operated. He was extremely nervous. His lips were quivering. He was visibly shaken. And um, from my experience throughout my career, it was obvious that he was extremely nervous by our presence. And it didn't take much time to realize we weren't going to get anywhere. He wasn't going to confess to the, the crime as we discussed it with him. He acted like he wasn't familiar with Patricia. And again, he just continued to ignore me as if I wasn't sitting in the room. Um, so therefore, I basically became like, I guess, the enemy because he wasn't flirtatious with me anymore. So I told him, hey, I know you're a busy man. I appreciate you taking the, the few minutes to, to share this with us and we'll be on our way. And, and the more I talk about that, you could just see his confidence building up. He became a little more talkative. Dawn was looking at me from across the room like, what are you doing? I still have questions to ask. And after a few minutes, the conversation just basically then turned towards just him and Captain Horn. And then at one point in the conversation, Captain Horn asked him for his DNA. And I stood up and started to walk towards the door. And he said, hey, any time you need me, you've got my numbers. You can call me, I'll be glad to talk to you. And I did. You know, just like on some of the old police shows, I paused, slowly turned around, and kind of shook my finger, you know, as if I was thinking and talking, you know, at the same time. I was like, you know what? I would really appreciate if you would give me a DNA sample and be willing to take a polygraph for me just so I can officially eliminate you as a suspect. When I said that to him, he freaked out started to hyperventilate, he lost his composure totally, more so than anybody else I ever recall interviewing him. Angry, he's scared. I mean, he was trembling really bad. And eventually, he was so upset that he excused himself and said he needed to go to the back, I assume bedroom, bathroom, I didn't know. Needed to go to the back and, and he'd be back in a couple of minutes. He got up to excuse himself because he, he, was, he was visibly shaken. His lips were quivering. He um, really couldn't control himself, so he, he excused himself from the room. So he goes to the back. Of course, Dawn saw the same 
reaction that I saw, and, and we knew we had something at that point. Well, he is a murder suspect, and he's known to be violent, he's known to carry a gun, and there's that uncomfortableness that you have. I know that Carl has a gun and is known to always carry a gun. Either he had a gun in his car or he always had one in his person, and so I wasn't gonna take any chances. He is a person of interest. He's not been arrested, but is this guy gonna come out with a gun from the back bedroom? You know, is this, is his past come back to haunt him and, and this is just that line in the sand, you know, that he's drawn and he's got the last stand mentality, he's gonna come out with a gun or? So when he got up to excuse himself, I wasn't sure if it was to re, you know, recompose himself or um, if he was gonna go get a weapon or something. So I actually had Dawn be prepared. She was more over to the side in, in the event he came out with some kind of weapon and I was gonna be his primary focus. I, I could see the hallway better. And as soon as I saw him, I, I was gonna engage him in conversation, you know, they had a gun. So I had uh, my notebook and I placed my gun underneath my notebook because I wasn't certain if he was gonna come out with a weapon or not. I mean, we're in his home, so I don't know, and that's where he, you know, he's familiar with his home, we're not. So I was uncertain if he was going to come back. So I had put my weapon underneath my notebook. But when I realized when he was coming back out down the hall, I didn't see anything in his hand. So he comes out, he's regained his composure. It's very somber at this point. I reholstered my weapon. He said, here's my card, it's got all my numbers. Call me anytime. I'd be glad to help you, whatever it is you need. But his tone was definitely a lot more down, whereas just before asking these questions, as he thought I was leaving, he was very upbeat and, and confident. He was the total opposite. I remember him saying, yeah, sure, I'll give you my DNA. Shortly thereafter, um, we, you know, we left. He's still visibly shaken. <laughs> um, he is still, his lips quivering. He can't control it and he's still extremely nervous. He's trembling, and this is something he just, he can't control. So I get the card, and I do thank him, and we go to the door and get back in the car, and as soon as we start back on the driveway. I mean, we didn't even get five, I, I would say three minutes, three to five minutes up the road, and then Captain Horn's phone rang, and it was from his, someone identified themselves as Britt's attorney and said that, um, not to contact his client anymore saying I represent him, he's not gonna cooperate, he's not gonna take a polygraph, he will not give a DNA sample. And so that's kind of just the, the Reader's Digest version of, of how that went down. We caught him off guard, wanted to see his honest reaction. To a degree, I think he liked to do his dirt, if you will, and uh, under the cloak of darkness. You know, he may not pick on somebody in front of a whole crowd, but he gets them alone, quietly, you know, intimidates them, threatens them, slashes their tires, hey, it was me, but it, it could have been anybody type thing. Uh, he does stuff to make people paranoid, make them afraid, hey, this guy might get me. And I think that's, that's kind of what he liked. Power. Oh, it's certainly like power, but control. and control. But most people are not going to have a huge audience around when they threaten somebody. 
Because if you do it in private, it's my word versus them, right? You do it in front of everybody, well, there's a whole courtroom full of witnesses for the for the you know, prosecution. Had Patricia or Jesse, and maybe they did, we'll never know. Did they stand up to him? Did they submit and give in? Were they taken off guard? You know, uh, we don't know. We can surmise either way. But if Jesse had jumped out of the car and, and Dr. Britt had a gun, Dr. Britt probably, if confronted just like he may have retreated. You got to think what happened a couple of years after the abduction and, and the murders. And he was still, when confronted, he retreated himself. So you would think if he would retreat after the murders, he probably would have retreated at that same time period of the murders if he was met with force and resistance. But people are caught off guard. And, you know, we've talked about how do you get someone out of the car that doesn't want to get out of the car. You either know them, and so that's why they might get out, or you impersonate a person of authority. You impersonate a person of authority. Does behavior like that sound familiar? Sure. According to Cheney's statement in the case file, Dr. Britt impersonated a cop when he wanted Cheney and his friend to get into his car. But who else have we met on this odyssey that liked to impersonate figures of authority? Remember back in episode four, when we introduced you to James Brandon Ray, the orderly from Watts Hospital who had motive, means, and opportunity to abduct and murder Pat and Jesse? The man who we could place at the scene of the crime with the rope, but absent of a record of violence, and when faced with a victim of Jesse's build, seems somewhat unlikely? The man who, while Pat and Jesse were missing and the entire world seemed to be searching for them, acted despondent and weird. Then, upon discovery of their bodies, sold his car and left the area, who was later arrested for a stolen motorcycle charge, effectively breaking parole and finding himself in a Florida federal penitentiary. Yeah, that guy. What if we told you that within five days of being released from that penitentiary, in 1976, he began working as a lab technician at the private internal medicine practice of Dr. Carl Britt. But this shouldn't be news to you. You've already heard it back in episode four. Dr. Britt told us all about it. He hid from me the fact that his med tech training was in the Eastern Virginia Penitentiary. And in fact, uh, Nick Galifianakis was on the uh, list of references for James Ray I called Nick, whom I knew personally, and uh, I asked him, and he said, well, you know, I knew the son, but I lost contact with him in his late teens. Now, I know his dad. His dad's fine. I went ahead and hired him anyway because he seemed to know when I gave a little brief laboratory survey, know what he was doing. But the nurse I had and the gal at, I can't even think of who was the second employee there, but at any rate, they came, they came to me and they said, we think he's cheating on the urinalyses. He said, He's not really taking the time to be doing a microscopic study on the urinalyses. And so when I confronted him with it, he disappeared. The only thing missing from the office was a camera. The next day, the camera was missing and he was gone. And he lived on a trailer park somewhere here south of Durham. And I even went by to talk to him about it and he had moved out. That was my last contact with James Ray. Take a second and let that sink in. We now have two suspects with documented accounts within the case file of impersonating law enforcement officers. 
Both of them can be placed in the vicinity of Crowsdale on the night of. Both of them worked at Watts Hospital and, by extension, had contact with Patricia Mann. Then, when Ray is paroled from prison, the first time he returns to Durham after the murders, he goes to work for Britt. James Ray, former janitor, orderly, prison cook, coffee shop manager, bouncer, carnival ride operator. He finds employment as a lab technician with one of our other lead suspects. Investigators first learned this information in 1976 when Durham District Attorney Anthony Brandon called together the original detectives and forced them to, for the first time, share all the information they had acquired working this case. Their disbelief, the incredulity, it's practically included in the transcript. Also in the transcript, SBI agent Fred Cahoon presents his case against James Brandon Ray. Then, Bowers reveals all his information about Dr. Carl Britt. When the link between the two men is established, it pretty much seals the deal. The consensus among the meeting's participants seems to be that Britt is their man. So why didn't they move on him then? We asked Judge Brandon ourselves. In any given case or matter, there could be a thousand details, any one of which could break the case. And if it doesn't happen, it just never happens. And eventually the case disappears from old age. And eventually, as, as you all know, the people involved die or retire and move away. And uh, the case is never solved. It lingers on in the minds of people who involve themselves in it. But other than that, once it disappears from the pages of the newspaper, it basically disappears. And this is one as I say, always stuck in my crawl. Because I always had the feeling that it was just one more piece of work, one more undiscovered detail. It might have well been solved. And just wouldn't. Uh, it's the fellow from prison suit. Never been willing to talk, but obviously from his experience in life, he wasn't about ready to do that. And the good doctor, I don't, I don't know to what extent if any, he was really pressed on the matter. But at least it was my th- thought at the time that he lawyered up and wouldn't say anything to anybody. And as a result, provided no information at all, no leads. And nothing else in the case led to anything else. But we asked him, what about the doctor's history? Could Britt's pattern of violence, could his behavior, his attitudes towards other people, could all of that, the death in Dillon, the incident with the hitchhikers, the road rage incident in Durham, would it matter a lick in a court of law? You're actually talking about a particular rule of evidence known as Rule 404B. I used to be thought of as an evidence scholar, and uh, that rule simply says that prior acts of misconduct of a similar nature to the crime charged are admissible as circumstantial evidence that the proprietor of those crimes probably committed this one. And uh, the rule, in my opinion, is based on common sense. 
comes from the old English common law, since I used to teach evidence law in particular. It's always tended to master that better than anything else. 404B was always a particular, particular interest and note to me because it's the circumstantial evidence kind of case in, in many cases, not just homicide or something like that, but uh, any kind of repetitive, whatever, crimes of repetition. If a person committed 10 such crimes in their lifetime, that's at least some circumstance that maybe they committed this one too. In this instance, if an investigator can establish a pattern of behavior, that pattern of behavior can be part of the prosecution. Yes, well put. Phrase that you often hear on television, modus operandi is an example of that. If a criminal had a pretty well established pattern, way of doing things. When you have an unsolved case that has all those same factors, just maybe they did this one too. Uh, and indeed, that's a, not an unusual kind of police work. It used to be that a lot of people had safes in their office and in their home. And while there's a crude way of breaking into a safe, you can't just beat the dirt they open. There are several well versed, well-known, well-practiced techniques that can be used and are used in cracking a safe. And so it's not a terribly unusual for a detective bureau in some given locale to have a particular crime which bears all the earmarks and characteristics of crimes previously done by X person, which automatically makes X person a suspect in this case. Now that obviously didn't involve itself in any way in the McBain case, but it's just a way in which law enforcement approaches things and sometimes solves them. But there was never one like this before. Now there have been obviously some tantalizing cases of people who in the nighttime approached parked cars, etc., in which it appeared to fit a pattern of someone's behavior and makes them automatically the lead suspect in that case. Now, that's not, it's not usually the basis upon which you arrest somebody, but it would sure be the basis by which you focus on them in the investigation. So, if I can follow that line of, of reasoning, in this case, there is as Horn has described to us, a fairly strong circumstantial case in which he has a series of behaviors that fit this crime. What is missing is a piece of hard evidence, um, either an eyewitness account, a confession, a DNA sample, or a fingerprint sample. That's what's missing, is it? I agree with that. There just never was, at least found by law enforcement, the smoky gun, if you will, that eureka moment, ah, we got the summage now. Uh, it just never was there. And with the passage of time, there's things tend to slip out of mind.
Dr. Robert Carl Britt would never so much as see the back of a police car. As with Floyd Carnes and Dillon, or Mark Cheney on the highway, or Susan Higginbotham in Durham, the good doctor, as he is called by investigators, would go on with his life. He practiced medicine in Durham until the end of July 2017, after which he retired to Florida. But before he left North Carolina, Drew and I paid him a visit. As mentioned in episode four, we found him and his wife, his second wife, cleaning out the doctor's office in which he'd practiced medicine for nearly 40 years. This would be only the second time he'd be questioned about his role in the murders of Patricia Mann and Jesse McBain. This could be a, uh, um, you know, I don't want to sound, you know, it could be it could be a delicate subject, but one of the more um, sensational stories that came out of uh, the nursing school was, of course, the murders in 1971 mm-hmm. of Patricia Mann and Jesse McBain. Mm-hmm. Um, did you know either of them? No, I didn't know either one of those. What was that like at the school, like uh, when, after that happened? I really didn't have any input from the school point of view. It was a sensational thing in the mm-hmm. paper, sort of like the Ducal Cross case was. Right. Mm-hmm. So all of us on the staff knew about it, but uh, I really didn't have any other information other than that. Quartermaster, I don't even know if they do sea scouting anymore, do they? Yes, it's a nationwide organization, and there aren't very many people that have had those, and of course, being in the Lumberton and the Lumber River, that was, we took that trip, it took five and a half days. We brought with us a colleague. She's there to ask Dr. Britt questions about Watts in the 70s. It wasn't until halfway through that we'd brought up the murders. Previous to this line of questioning, Dr. Britt had been forthcoming, even friendly. He gave us a copy of his resume. But at the mere mention of the murders, his demeanor noticeably changed. We don't want to, again, be offensive, but we've seen some of this stuff um, um, from the McBain case. And and it, it appears that you were questioned in that. Is that true? Well, that's true, but I guess a lot of people probably were. Right, right. Do you remember, like, what they were talking to you about? What the nature of that questioning would be? Uh, we had someone from the Orange County people come some 35, 40 years later and were asking questions similar to what you are mm-hmm. and told them Mike Stenhoe, which is basically what I saw in the paper. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember having a conversation with a member of the staff about it because everybody in those days was extremely busy and when you went in the hospital to make rounds, you really didn't have much time to socialize. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of this was after the fact anyway. It wasn't uh, as though it came up during the time that it occurred, not, not to my memory. Mm-hmm. Yes, because that's just that's the thing that forms, because we've talked to a lot of the nurses, um, mm-hmm. and we've talked to a lot of the sort of the class folks who are there, um, and that's the thing that forms their memory the most mm-hmm. about that time. That's the... How tragic that's yeah. what you carry away from your training days. This is a tough question, so I have to ask it. And I don't, again, I don't mean to be offensive, um, but the Orange County Sheriff's Office has named you a suspect in that case. Do you? I first found out about this uh, probably some five, six years ago, and up until that time, and the person that came out was oh gosh, Tim something. Can you remember his last name now? And he intimated this, and I said, well, you know. 
I was never questioned or asked anything about this back mm -hmm. when it apparently occurred. I said, if I'm a suspect, somebody never told me. Mm -hmm. And so this was the first that I'd ever heard about that. So no awareness of why or no awareness of any kind of history of, of, of why they would think that or why they would suggest that? I don't that. have any idea Come. other than the fact that I was a member of the staff. We highly doubted we'd get a confession from him. However, we asked if we could meet with him again to follow up with more questions. He agreed and appeared more than happy to do so, just like he had when Horn and Hunter finished their meeting with him. And just like with Horn and Hunter, he rebuffed any follow-up visits with an invitation to speak with his lawyer. The next time we met him at his office, we were not invited inside. Instead, Dr. Britt stood at the door and again denied any involvement to the murders. He referred us to his lawyer. He refused, politely I might add, to delve any further into our suspicions, with the exception of one brief moment, which ultimately made quite the impact. One of the things that they found most interesting was that there was an assault on two hitchhikers in 1973. Now that I was asking. Yeah, you were? Yeah, there was a guy from Raleigh that came, and uh, in fact, he was an attorney that was head of, I don't know what division of motor vehicles he was with, but he came, and we talked across the street. I was over there at the time, and mm -hmm. uh, it was a very brief conversation, 10, 15 minutes, and again, it was something I knew nothing about, but apparently it was something that took place close to where I lived in Crowsdale. Uh-huh. Uh, as apparently these other things took place, but here again, I knew nothing about it. Right, right. And, um... But I think that they, the police seem to think that that casts some kind of suspicion on you. Well, I could understand if one was true, why something else might be a little suspicion too. But again, nothing was ever mentioned about any assault on people or murders or anything like that. I during just, during that I time. was aghast when the Orange County people showed up 40-some years later with this. And he's looking at me like, well, oh, yes, you knew. And I said, no, sir, I didn't. Mm. Mm. Here again, that made me mad because that's a conversation at my home. I actually had him and his assistant come into my home and I had been asleep for like 12 hours in the road having worked all night and I thought all that was a setup of some kind that made no sense to me. But Mr. will be glad to answer any questions for you. You got it. Yeah, he knows all the details about this stuff. And they had asked you to take a DNA and a polygraph test and you well, refused? Uh, the guy from Orange County did. And Mr. I said, hell no. He said, we've got too many Deavers in Raleigh right now, you know, making up their own evidence of some fresh DNA, and it'll get sprinkled on whatever they've had for years and years. The comment he made at the end, too many Deavers, that's in reference to disgraced former SBI agent Dwayne Deaver, who in 2011 was fired after it was discovered he'd mishandled evidence, among other allegations. That case had great implications across North Carolina law enforcement, and apparently left an impression on Dr. Britt. But it was something else Britt said that perked our ears. He said he was questioned about the Cheney incident by a guy from Raleigh, an attorney that was head of the motor vehicle division. Our notes said it was Bowers and Assistant District Attorney Nick Smith who questioned him. So what was he talking about? And besides, if Bowers can't tell us about that meeting, could Nick Smith? Where was Nick Smith? Who was he? And what other impacts would he have with his involvement on this case? All right, I have found a barbecue place that stuffs barbecue inside a hush puppy. 
It's called a pig in a pub. <laughs> All right, well, sign me up. Eric and I are far from finished with investigating this story. And the bombshells and breakthroughs are far from over, as you'll find out on the next installment of The Long Dance. The Long Dance is produced by Eric Pruitt, Drew Adamack, and me, Piper Kessler. This was Episode 6. Please subscribe. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like this story, please tell your friends. Share it on social media. Help us spread the word about the stories of the lives touched by the murders of Patricia Mann and Jesse McBain. Episodes are written by Eric Pruitt. Field produced by Drew Adamek. My name is Piper Kessler, and I'm the sound engineer. Mike Rollin composed the music score. And additional voices in this episode were presented by Nick Beery. Our website is thelongdancepodcast.com, and it includes additional media relevant to the story. Please be sure to check it out. And most of all, thank you for listening. <laughs>